Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the last of the Republican presidential candidates' debate, which was on a lesser-known network, News Nation, and featured the final four, Christie, DeSantis, Haley, and Ramaswamy, challenging Trump, who was not on the debate stage and is way ahead in the polls. Joining us to discuss a ritual in our democratic process that avoided discussing the endangered state of our democracy is Aaron Rupar, who until recently was the Associate Editor for Politics and Policy at Vox and is now an independent journalist covering U.S. politics and media. He's the author of Public Notice at aaronrupar.substack.com, where his latest articles include The Last GOP Debate Features the Saddest Final Four Ever, They're competing for a participation trophy. Then we'll go to Israel to speak with Haggai Matar, an award-winning Israeli journalist and political activist. He's the executive director of 972 magazine. We'll discuss his article at the New Statesman, There is Little Tolerance in Israel for Dissenting Feelings, and how anti-war left-wing activists in Israel are being silenced and threatened, while right-wing thugs and religious nationalists are protected and encouraged by the government and police. Then finally, we'll look into growing tensions on the border between Venezuela and Guyana, as Venezuela's President Maduro makes claims on his neighboring country threatening to annex an oil and mineral-rich chunk of Guyana. Joining us from Venezuela is Phil Gunson, the Andes Project Senior Analyst with the International Crisis Group, who conducts advocacy on political issues in the Andes region, focusing primarily on the Venezuelan political situation. He has spent almost 40 years reporting on Latin America for the BBC World Service, The Guardian and The Economist, and in the 1980s he covered the wars in Central America, and in the late 1990s he was Latin American correspondent for The Guardian based in Mexico City. And he's co-authored two books on the region, including a two-volume political dictionary of Latin America and the Caribbean. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Aaron Rupa, who until recently was the Associate Editor for Politics and Policy at Vox, and is now an independent journalist covering U.S. politics and media. He's the author of Public Notice at aaronrupa.substack.com, where his latest articles include The Last GOP Debate Featured the Saddest Final Four Ever, They're Competing for a Participation Trophy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aaron Rupa. Thanks for having me. So, given the futility of these debates, given the massive lead that Trump has, and in fact, uh, Megyn Kelly, one of the moderators, sort of pointed that out, that (laughs) why are you bothering, in effect? Why then are the media covering it? I mean, uh, not that this new, what is it called, News Nation is up there with the others, but it has been on mainstream platforms like NBC prior to this, right? Yeah, and actually just before we hopped on this call, I saw that uh, the ratings for last night's debate are out, and unsurprisingly, um, they're not very good. Um, you know, it looks like they're down uh, basically one-third of what the uh, the audience for the first of these four debates uh, was. So there's, there's not a ton of interest in these, and then I think that was compounded as you alluded to by the fact that this one was on News Nation and the CW. And uh, a lot of people get the CW, but it's certainly not a channel that you think of for politics. And so 
Yeah, if you look at the the national polling, you'll see that Trump is up over 60 percent and none of the other candidates are above you know, the mid-teens. And so in that context, it looks like this is a done deal and Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. And certainly if you were wagering on this, um, the odds would be pretty overwhelming that Trump is going to win. But to push back slightly, I mean, I would point out that, you know, both in New Hampshire and in Iowa, Trump is currently polling and has been for months now in the 40s. And so, you know, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that if some of these other candidates started dropping out and their support consolidated behind one of the remaining candidates, whether that be Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, that Trump could be upset in one of these early states and the dynamics of the race could shift. But, you know, I think that's more of a pipe dream at this point. You know, I think that it's overwhelmingly likely that Trump will be the nominee. And so that's kind of the reason that these debates are so sad is that, you know, the kind of debates about nothing where we know these candidates um, in all likelihood are not going to be the Republican nominee for president. And we know that on policy, um, you know, policy takes a backseat to sort of demagoguing and singling out various groups for hatred, you know, whether that be trans people, immigrants. Um, so they're, they're kind of sad spectacles. And, um, you know, I tried to capture that in my piece. Then we had a recap today that was really honing in on all the various groups of people that uh, got demeaned over the course of this debate and also were targets in the previous three as well. Right. They were almost competing in how to be uh, brutal towards trans kids. And it took Christie to point out that the Republican Party used to be about keeping government off the backs of individuals. And here they are wanting to police parents in terms of taking away their choices involving their own children. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Christie, um, you know, to pivot slightly, I mean, I think he's been kind of the the example here of how there really isn't a lane um, at this point for a Republican to be anti-Trump and to win a Republican primary. I mean, that's been the lane from literally his first speech uh, announcing his campaign where he called the Trump family grifters uh, that Christie has been running in is kind of the anti-Trump lane. And he never really gained any traction in the polls. I mean, even in New Hampshire, where he's basically staking his entire campaign on winning there, um, he's pulling around 10 percent. And, um, you know, it, it seems like um, if it's going to be a non-Trump candidate who wins in New Hampshire, it's probably not going to be him. And so to me, that's kind of the the illustration of, you know, just the fact that a non-Trump alternative wasn't going to be viable uh, in this environment in the Republican Party. And I think it also explains why with Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, um, you know, they've, they've kind of kept their powder mostly dry with Trump, or they kind of treat him like he is a normal politician who had a successful presidency rather than an aspiring authoritarian, because, you know, I think that uh, Republican voters just aren't receptive to that message. Most of them love Trump. And, uh, you know, it really was, it's kind of a dilemma that there really is no solution for. How do you run to supplant Trump in a party that loves Trump when Trump is still on the ballot? And nobody really figured that out. That became obvious, didn't it, Aaron, when, uh, when Christie criticized Trump as an authoritarian the crowd booed, and the crowd, it, the venue was the University of, uh, in Alabama, and they chose the venue because they wanted to get young people's opinions and potential votes. And these young Republicans are total Trumpsters, right? Yeah, well, and the other moment that really jumped out to me along those lines was when Vivek Ramaswamy got a big round of cheers for saying that January 6th is an inside job. Um, which obviously is, is completely bonkers, other than, you know, if you want to say it was inside job because Trump was president and he incited it, I mean, I guess in that sense it was, but of course that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about this idea that, you know, federal agents were among the Trump supporters and kind of played a leading role in inciting them to break the law and things like that. But, you know, this is a conspiracy theory that is way, way out there because we all kind of witnessed what happened on January 6th. We saw Trump organized on social media. We listened to him incite it with his speech. Uh, just before the ransacking, ransacking of the Capitol occurred. And so, you know, you have the back out there pushing this, which, you know, is something that you maybe see on like Alex Jones's show or something like that. And he got a big round of cheers for that. So, uh, yeah, there, there were some hints, I think, in the crowd response uh, in this debate and in previous ones as to where the Republican Party is at. And like you said, uh, you know, Christie more often than not gets booed instead of cheered. And uh, so it, it's a really tough environment for uh, for these candidates who aren't Trump to try and draw any sort of meaningful contrast. Um, you know, it, it's just been, for those reasons, I think these all kind of explain why the ratings and the interest was so low in this. 
Well, Ramaswamy also said uh, that global warming is a hoax, right? And uh, at least a couple of them, both Haley and Christie, nailed him. I think, what did Christie call him? Uh, blowhard? Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, you said something to the effect of, uh, yeah, you, you know, th- this is why America agrees that you're the most insufferable, insufferable blowhard in the country or something like that. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, that actually came in the context of, Ramaswamy's misogyny, where um, you know, he was going after Nikki Haley based on her kind of making insinuations about her intelligence and things like this, which, you know, I mean, you can say what you want about Nikki Haley. I'm obviously not a fan, but I don't think that she's unintelligent. And so I think there, you know, there is kind of some uh, some coding to Ramaswamy's attacks on her um, that's pretty unsavory. And so, you know, as you mentioned earlier, in the context of some of the transphobia, where Christie seemed to be the one candidate, uh, you know, being somewhat humane, just in pointing out that, you know, this would really be left at the parents, not the government in terms of, you know, the gender identity of these kids. Um, you know, I think that's, that kind of illustrates the state of affairs with the Republican Party when Chris Christie is kind of your overwhelming voice of reason on the on the stage. So was there any mention, I think, I think there was from Christie, but was there any debate amongst them about the fact that Trump is a declared authoritarian. I mean, he's talking about going after his enemies, referring to them as vermin, invoking the Insurrection Act on on day one, and then just on Tuesday on Fox with Hannity, he was asked in a very timid way about uh, his authoritarian plans to be a dictator. And uh, (laughs) Trump said... I'll just do that on day one. I mean, I mean, what's wrong with these people? Can't they talk well, about the was, obvious? Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because, I, you know, in some ways, I think that was the most memorable moment from these TV events. You know, both the Republican debate uh, and then kind of the counter programming, which came the night before, which was Trump sitting down uh, with Hannity. And, and you know, one of the funny things, kind of a, a sidebar in that, was that it was promoted as a town hall. Well, first of all, it was pre-taped because, you know, of course, I think Fox probably had some carefulness and you know if Trump really goes in on the big lie uh, or something like that they don't want to get sued again um, so I think part of that is to kind of protect themselves and edit out statements that could be defamatory before the the event airs and then secondly um, it's called the town hall but Trump took no questions from anyone it was just Hannity and him talking so that's not really a town hall I mean it's just kind of an interview in front of a an audience in Iowa but um, you know the thing that was remarkable about the comment that you mentioned where Trump admitted that you know, he plans to do dictatorial things and abuse his power on day one. And, you know, I think he kind of, he, you know, arguably kind of meant it as a joke. I mean, you know, I posted these clips and I got some pushback from people kind of, you know, insisting that I was taking him too literally. But, you know, to these people, I would just kind of point out that, you know, we lived in January 6th. We've already kind of seen how this movie ends. And so the idea that Trump wouldn't actually do some of this stuff that he's talking about, I mean, it's belied by very recent experience. But, um, you know, Hannity asked him the question once just in terms of, you know, your critics are saying that you have plans to abuse your power and become a dictator. What do you say to them? And he didn't answer the question. I mean, I, you know, he, he basically said, I can't remember what he started talking about, but he, he immediately kind of changed the, the topic and never actually addressed Kennedy's question. And then Kennedy about five minutes later circled back a second time. It was like, I, I just want to you know make sure that you answer this question about whether you plan to abuse your power. And that's when Trump said, only on day one. Uh, do I plan to do that? But, uh, you know, in terms of what the other candidates have been saying, um, you know, I talked about this a little bit in my most recent piece for public notice that uh, the, the problem seems to be with DeSantis, with Trump's rhetoric, his problem with it seems to be that it doesn't go far enough. You know, I don't think he's bothered by the authoritarianism. I think DeSantis's criticism of Trump is that his authoritarianism, authoritarianism is all about settling his own personal scores and not the scores of his voters, and that it's not you know, populist enough, that you know, Trump is being selfish with some of these promises that he's making to go after the deep state or root out the deep state and things like that. And uh, Haley is also kind of downplayed it. I mean, she even sort of defended Trump's comments about executing Mark Milley, saying that I think he means well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just, you know, it's the same thing that we kind of talked about earlier, where um, I think both DeSantis and Haley are aware that they can't afford to alienate the Trump base. And so you get kind of these mental gymnastics of them, you know, trying to um, critique him in a very mild way that won't cost them support among Trump supporters. But, you know, in so doing, they kind of make absurdities of themselves. And meanwhile, Trump is out there calling Nikki Haley bird brain, calling DeSantis to sanctimonious and uh, basically going total war on these two. And so um, you can see why this is a strategy that's not working out. 
So there's some suggestion, Erin, that Liz Cheney, who's publicising her new book, was sort of forced Hannity to bring up that question about Trump's being a dictator because the one takeaway from what Liz Cheney's been saying is that we are sleepwalking into dictatorship. And the fact that he dodged the question a couple of times, actually, and then finally answered it by saying he'd only be a dictator on day one would indicate to me that Liz Cheney is not really getting much traction there amongst Republicans, let alone MAGA world. She's been sort of wall-to-wall on MSNBC, which is kind of preaching to the choir. So do you think that Liz Cheney's incredibly important an urgent warning here is penetrating the Republicans in any way, or, you know, obviously not MAGA world, but is there any traction within the Republican Party? Is there anything left of the Republican Party that's not totally insane? Uh, you know, I, I fear not. I mean, you know, first of all, you don't see, as you kind of alluded to, you don't see Liz Cheney on Fox or Newsmax. I mean, she's on MSNBC and CNN. Um, you know, and secondly, I've seen some people, you, you know, um, you know, pushing this idea that of Liz Cheney possibly running for president as a third party. And, you know, some people making kind of earnest cases that this, this would be good for Biden because she would peel off votes for from Trump as kind of like a, you know, certainly a, a conservative, but one who is pro-democracy and, you know, against the January 6th and has been very clear on that. But, you know, to me, I think that um, you know, just kind of thinking through this rationally, you know, if you are someone who is inclined in any way, shape or form to vote for Trump, um, you're not going to vote for Liz Cheney because, you know, on the very key issue of, you know, kind of the value of democracy in January 6th, I mean, they're diametrically opposed. And that seems to be, you know, I just don't see any overlap in those two constituencies, the, the mega base and Liz Cheney fans. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, unfortunately, um, you're right in your description that, you know, she's basically preaching to the choir at this point and spending a lot of time on MSNBC. And uh, for that reason, I mean, you know, I've kind of tuned into some of her interviews. She's certainly been doing kind of saturation, um, you know, on a variety of MSNBC shows. She's been on CNN. Uh, she was on Nicole Wallace's show yesterday for a full hour, um, which was, you know, pretty long. But, um, you know, I mean, it, it, she's got a very important message and it's very much worth listening to. But, you know, I, I just fear that the people who uh, need to hear it um, aren't hearing it and don't want to hear it. And so, um, you know, that's kind of where we're at now. I think we're, we're kind of staring down the barrel of an election again next year that's going to be very close uh, and with some significant um, headwinds, you know, just with perceptions of the economy being very negative. Um, you know, I think the, the you know, Israel-Hamas war has really done some damage on his left flank and cost him some support there. So, you know, everything is on the line and Biden is heading in without a lot of momentum. But, you know, we still are, I guess, you know, what, 10, 11 months away and a lot can change. So I, I'm not hitting the panic button yet. But, you know, the more of these polls that you see where Trump is, you know, three, four, five points ahead nationally and leading in these key swing states, um, you know, it is very concerning because really in a lot of ways, I mean, the only issue that really matters is what, you know, the democracy issue, because, um, you know, if Trump gets back into office, there might not be too many more elections. And, you know, I wish people could kind of see that for what it is. But uh, there still seems to be a temptation to kind of treat this as politics as normal. And um, and that to me is one of the things with these debates is that, you know, the policy conversations are kind of so beside the point. I mean, certainly, you know, on reproductive rights and abortion, um, those are very meaningful to people and matter a bit. But, um, you know, ultimately, we're this election and pretty much anyone in the future that Trump is on the ballot is going to be a referendum on democracy. And uh, I just more people. I wish more people could understand that. Well, just in closing, Aaron, it, it would seem to me that if Trump becomes president, it will be because of the sabotage coming from Joe Manchin and No Labels, which is run by Mark Penn, who is a real sort of right winger dressed in sheep's clothing. Uh, he worked for Clinton, but he's always he's out for money and for power and they can do enormous damage. And then you've got RFK Jr. who's going to siphon votes. Not entirely clear how much he'll siphon from the Republicans or from Trump or from Biden, but he's certainly going to take votes away from Biden. And then Putin's redeployed his useful idiot, Jill Stein, so she'll take some votes away. So that seems to me to be the most likely way that 
Biden's going to lose, apart from the fact that he's bleeding votes from Arab Americans and from young people outraged by his bear hug of Netanyahu. Yeah, I mean, the no-label thing kind of remains to be seen, you know, to to what extent they put forward a serious candidate and if that candidate ends up, you know, I think if it is a Joe Manchin, um, I think there is some small percentage of otherwise people who would vote for Biden who would vote for him. And, you know, certainly these elections are decided these days on the margin. So that really could be damaged. You know, you see, um, you know, Arab communities in Michigan, um, you know, now vowing that, you know, some, some Arabs there are saying that they won't vote for Biden under any circumstances and, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, alarm alarm bells sounding at this point, and, and I am very concerned about that. Um, you know, I, I do think that as the election draws near and we enter more of a campaign environment and uh, in theory, it becomes more of a binary choice. Although, as you're mentioning, you know, as you mentioned, RK Jr. is in the mix. He's been polling. You know, that's something I don't fully understand him polling at, you know, between like 10 and 15 percent nationally, it seems um, very high to me, but, you know, apparently there's a good bit of support for him out there. Um, but, you know, so in theory, this will become more of a binary choice. And when that happens, um, and there's more of a spotlight placed on Trump, who, you know, other than um, kind of his indictments, um, he's not in the news a ton. It's not like his rally speeches get a ton of coverage. Uh, you know, the Hannity town hall I just did was the same interviews on the Hannity dozens and dozens of times over the past decade. Um, but when, you know, when people start paying more attention to what Trump is saying and doing, uh, you'd hope that for a lot of the reasons we've touched upon, uh, that will shore up some of the support for Biden or more uh, people in the center and the left of the political spectrum will come home and vote for Biden. But, you know, I think we're seeing some challenges that we didn't see in 2020 with, as you mentioned, the no label situation, RK Jr. running. Um, there's a lot of people out there trying to siphon away votes from Biden at this point. And uh, it is concerning because we're in such a polarized climate right now where, um, you know, it's a few thousand votes in key states that can swing this thing. And so, you know, if Biden leads just a little bit of Arab support in Michigan, uh, that could throw the entire presidency to Trump. And, you know, we all know what the consequences of that will be. So, you know, I'm finding myself kind of having to fight through, uh, you know, when, when Trump won in 2016, um, that was extremely dismaying. And I couldn't even really believe that that happened at the time. And then, you know, 2020, we knew everything was on the line. And so it was a huge sense of relief when Trump lost and then finally left the White House after attempting a coup. But, you know, I do feel kind of a sense, a little bit of exhaustion where it's just frustrating that, you know, people still never still kind of having the same conversation about Trump that we've been having uh, for eight years and that people don't know better at this point or, you know, think that um, any problem is going to be solved by returning Trump to power or making a protest vote for Cornel West or, you know, one of these uh, third party candidates. Uh, because it's not going to fix anything. I mean, you know, people don't want to hear that. And I understand the frustrations with Biden's foreign policy. And as you mentioned, you know, as you, as you characterize it, the bear hug that he's offered to Netanyahu and things like that. And certainly I don't agree with those things either. But, you know, if, if we want to have a future as a country, um, none of these issues, none of these critiques that people have with American foreign policy are going to be solved by, uh, you know, making a protest vote or voting for Trump. And that's not to absolve Biden of responsibility or say that, you know, we should whitewash any of the issues um, surrounding his presidency simply because Trump, you know, the, the specter of Trump kind of looms over us. But, you know, when you boil it down, um, you, democracy hinges on him not returning to the White House. And the only realistic alternative to Trump at this point is Biden, barring something unforeseen happening. And so uh, that's kind of where I'm at. You know, I, I know you want to talk specifically about the debates, but I guess that's more my macro read on, on what's going on with American politics right now. But would you agree, just in closing, Aaron, that we are sleepwalking into fascism? You know, I think so. I, you know, I think that, that there is a lot of merit to that description, but I will also kind of caveat that by pointing out that, you know, we're still 10 months away. I don't think we're in a campaign environment at this point where, you know, people are paying a lot of attention to the race. And I think that will change as it draws near, you know, as we draw closer to the conventions. Um, it's unclear whether there will be debates, but... Certainly, there'll be a lot more attention paid to politics. I mean, we still have you know, at least one Trump trial to come between now and the election next November. And so, you know, I think we're sleepwalking right now. I think it's apt to put it that way. But I don't think, or at least I hope, that that won't be the case as the election draws closer. Um, you know, because things in late 2019, to kind of roll it back in the previous election cycle, um, at this point in 2019, things look pretty good for Trump. Um, you know, if you remember, he went through his first impeachment and 
ultimately he was not uh, he was impeached but not convicted of course and coming out of that those were some of his high, highest approval ratings of his presidency were like early 2020 when the economy was strong there was kind of a sense which you know a, a sense wrongly in my opinion but that the impeachment was politicized and you know his um the fact that he wasn't convicted was viewed as a victory for him. And of course, he took a big victory lap with the press event at the White House. Um, and he had really high approval ratings. And, you know, everything changed with COVID. And you know, certainly I hope that we know something like that in store for us next year. But I simply bring that up to point out that, you know, people obsessing over Biden's approval numbers right now, uh, that a lot is going to change over the next 10 months. And so I don't think it's time to panic yet. But I am concerned that we are sleepwalking more than we should be at this point. Well, Aaron Rupa, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Aaron Rupa, who until recently was, was the associate editor for Politics and Policy at Vox, and is now an independent journalist covering U.S. politics and media. He's the author of Public Notice at aaronrupa.substack.com, where his latest articles include The Last GOP Debate Features the Saddest Final Four Ever. They're competing for a participation trophy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back and go to Israel to speak with an award-winning Israeli journalist and political activist who is the executive director of the 972 magazine. And we will discuss how anti-war left-wing activists in Israel are being silenced and threatened while right-wing thugs and religious nationalists are protected and encouraged by the government and police. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Israel is Hagai Matar, who's an award-winning Israeli journalist and political activist. He is the executive director of 972 magazine and has an article at the New Statesman, There is Little Tolerance in Israel for Dissenting Feelings. Welcome to Background Briefing, Hagai Matar. Thank you for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, Haggai. And in your New Statesman article, you mentioned that a colleague of yours, Israel Frey, participated in a ceremony in which, being an observant Jew, he said a prayer for the memory of all slain children. And then when a video documenting that prayer went viral, a right-wing mob attacked his house and forced him to escape with his family under police protection. So you are a left-wing activist in Israel. How inhospitable is the current environment? It's very inhospitable. Um, the case of Israel Frey is, is really, the, I think, the most extreme personal experience that uh, one Jewish Israeli has experienced. Um, Palestinian citizens of Israel have been arrested, hundreds of them, simply for liking a post on Facebook that's benign as calling for a ceasefire. Um, we're really seeing something that people, uh, Palestinian citizens, refer to as the return to the military regime, uh, referencing the um, age of military regime between 1948 and 1966, when Palestinian citizens uh, were really subjected to a military regime, and, and they feel like that has returned in terms of the policing of speech. Uh, for Jewish Israelis as well, we've seen a few people arrested for for social media posts, uh, such as you know mourning the death of children in Gaza and other things. Um, so it is quite frightening. And I've also had three additional friends who had their addresses published in right-wing forums, kind of calling on attacks on their homes and escape their houses, fearing the same fate as Israel Fry. Thankfully, you know, those houses weren't attacked. But the, the feeling that that could happen anytime to any one of us Oh, any one of us is, is very powerful and uh, terrifying. So let me get this straight then, Haggai. Right-wing religious nationalists and settlers can attack Palestinians at will and get away with it, but left-wing Israelis protesting the war in Gaza are targets. Yeah, very much so. I mean, um, you could see that even today, and this is coming from the top, when there were two 
events that were scheduled for today. One, a conference by Hadash, the Communist Party, um, was supposed to have a conference against the war, and the other, a march in the old city of Jerusalem by religious fundamentalists essentially calling to destroy all of Gaza, you know, ethnically cleanse Gaza and then continue to the West Bank, uh, also calling on rebuilding the Temple Mount. The conference against the war was uh, prevented by police who called the owners of the venue where it was supposed to be held, threatening that his venue will be shut down if he allows the conference to take place. Whereas the march through the Muslim quarter of East Jerusalem um, of these fundamentalists was approved by police. Um, so, so that just kind of gives you a sense of what sort of voices are legitimized by uh, government and by police and, and what sort of voices are being um, silenced. So is there any other dissent, though? I mean, apart from left-wing activists like yourself. I mean, for example, Haaretz has a lengthy article, which I found interesting, titled, The Women Soldiers Who Warned of a Pending Hamas Attack and Were Ignored. And it really goes into detail of how these young women who were posted on the border with Gaza, who uh, were analysts and basically watching TV screens, they weren't even armed. And, you know, those that survived have been able to to talk about how they were called spotters, you know. They were able to talk about how they warned in detail their superiors about what they saw that was happening inside of Gaza. And their superiors, uh, men, were disdainful of them, were chauvinistic towards them, uh, and, you know, said, well, you know, who are you? I've been on the border for 12 years and you're just a nobody, you know. Uh, and, of course, the women turned out to be right. So... Is there any kind of discussion going on in Israel about missing these warnings and the intelligence failures? Yes, very much so. And there's actually been even more reporting beyond that story about intelligence officers, also women, um, who were seeing, who were gathering the intelligence and seeing and warning. There was actually a, a scenario written by one um, intelligence officer who said, this is how Hamas is planning to attack. And it details um, to the finest uh, points how the October 7th attack ended up playing out, but she did this a year in advance. Um, and, you know, when, when her superiors, again, men looking at a woman writing this report, had read this, they were like, this is, you know, fantasy, this is fiction, this could never happen. She said, but it's grounded in the evidence, and she was just brushed aside. So all these testimonies are constantly coming out, um, making it very clear that the depth of the, of the failure, the just utmost failure uh, of the army to recognize what its own soldiers were seeing is about to happen, um, is truly colossal. And that is being discussed. I would say the two kind of aspects or three aspects that are in controversy in the Israeli society right now that are legitimate controversy are the, the way that the army uh, has misled or, or was misguided in the way it, it operated up until and on October 7th. So that failure is one thing that is being discussed. The other is the question of how to deal with hostages. Are they a priority getting them back or, that, or is that a second uh, in, in priority to uh, toppling Hamas? and the functioning of Netanyahu. Like, these are the three things where public debate is legitimate at this point, but still everything else is really not. And I think what is, is really painful to see is how so many people recognize that the government and the army failed us as citizens on October 7th, and at the same time are willing to just support the same government and the same army blindly in the campaign right now and not question anything and you don't see any questioning of the way that the military campaign is being led right now. But are the intelligence failures being tied in any way to Netanyahu? How far up the chain did they go? So this is kind of the, the political battle that's happening. You have people around Netanyahu, mostly his son, who are really pushing the narrative of this is all the army's fault. 
like and they they would uplift these stories that we were just discussing saying the army knew that this could happen and they failed to act on it the army uh, commanders um were telling Netanyahu that their professional opinion is that there is no risk. And he acted based on their professional opinion. Therefore, it's their fault and not his. Um, Netanyahu critics would say, well, Netanyahu has been the prime minister for, you know, since 2009 consecutively, but for one year, he's ultimately responsible for everything that happens here. He's the one person to be held responsible. And it's not just about was October 7th predictable in the way that it happened from a military perspective, but his whole philosophy of uh, supporting the empowerment of Hamas just to ensure that there is no Palestinian unity and no threat of a Palestinian partner to negotiate with, uh, his idea that you can override Palestinians by having peace deals with the Arab world and sideline Palestinians, which Hamas is saying was one of the main reasons for the attack. Um, so those are the points of criticism aimed at Netanyahu. And this is kind of the battle being fought uh, on who's uh, ultimately to blame. So is there any evidence that Netanyahu is continuing this war in order to stay out of prison? Because that's basically what he's all about, isn't it? He's about finding ways to stay in power in order not to go to jail. Yeah, I think I think he wants to stay in power not only to get out of jail, but because he's someone who really loves being in power. Um, and it's very clear that right now his position is to continue with the war as much as possible. He knows that in public opinion polls, a vast majority of Israelis find him responsible and think that he should leave. And a majority of Israelis think that that should only happen once the war is over, so not replacing him as the war is still ongoing. Uh, so between those two figures, uh, he has a vested interest in making sure that the war lasts as much as possible. He's hoping to be able to stay in power, at least to see a Trump presidency that will be uh, helpful for him, um, at least to allow people to forget his responsibility for October 7th and to kind of own what he hopes to be some sort of a military victory. Um, and he's kind of rebranding himself as the one person preventing a Palestinian state, which, which would be even more dangerous than what happened in October 7th. So th these are the ways that he's trying to cement his power in a very, very shaky period. So Hagai Matal, let's return to your article at the New Statesman. There is little tolerance in Israel for dissenting feelings. Um, we're talking about dissent from the left, not from the right, which is sanctioned and encouraged and protected often by the IDF, uh, particularly when it involves punishment of Palestinians. But heaven forbid that you should be a leftist in the current situation. As you pointed out, meeting of the Communist Party was cancelled by the police or they took away the venue. So the question, I think, that's always puzzled me is what happened to the Israeli left? After all, this was a country that in many ways was found by, founded by socialists uh, with the, the original kibbutzes being sort of socialist experiments. Um, I mean, during Bill Clinton's presidency, he once made the remark that Israel has moved to the right because of the influx of Russians who, of course, hated communism and have brought their politics with them. And Clinton got roundly criticized by the Israelis for making that statement. So what's the explanation for the shrinkage of the left in Israel? I think um, while there, there is a certain kind of glory uh, that, that is being attributed to the old days of you know, the labor movement and the kibbutzim, in, in Israel of old, we need to remember that the same movement was also um, of a colonial nature, both vis-a-vis -vis Palestinians, those kibbutzim were set up on, on Palestinian land, um, and vis-a-vis -vis Jewish uh, Mizrahi um, immigrants who came in from, from other parts of uh, the Arab and Muslim world. Um, 
So, so there was always that element and, and not, you know, particularly left, quite a racist element to the kind of founding parties and, and leaders of Israel. Um, and I think remembering that context, we also need to recognize that, you know, th there was some sort of a liberal peace camp in the 90s. Um, and that was basically broken by Ehud Barak in 2000, um, trying to force a final agreement on Yasser Arafat uh, in Camp David. And when that failed, he basically came back and said, there is no partner. We don't have anyone to talk to. Um, Palestinians just don't want us here. And we need to go back to the mode of eternal war. I think he is probably the person to blame most for the collapse of the Israeli peace movement, at least. Um, and over the years, beyond uh, the, the, the blow that Ehud Barak gave to, to the left, we've seen the reality over the past 15 years under Netanyahu, where he was successful in making Israelis become numb to the issue of Palestinians at all. So you have all these divisions within the Israeli society. The question of how to deal with Palestinians stopped being one of them. It, it became a non-issue where Netanyahu was selling to Israelis that we have basically beat the Palestinians. They are no longer a threat. We don't need to consider them. And we can sustain them basically under our boot for as long as we want. Um, that theory is obviously Keep came crum crumbling down um, on October 7th, which is part of why he's found to blame. But Israelis have been complacent in this, have accepted this notion. Um, and that has contributed to the marginalization of the left. So you're equating then the left in Israel with those Israelis who want justice and fairness for the Palestinians. The, the two have always been connected. You have people that are, you know, on the left in terms of their work as unionizers or their struggles for social justice that don't support Palestinian rights. You have kind of that uh, circle. And you also have people that support Palestinian rights and justice for Palestinians who are um, capitalists and, and don't support uh, the left in any other sense. But I think to a great degree, there is. Uh, some overlap between those two circles uh, of, of different kinds of left. So at this point, it's hard to be optimistic, right? Both about the nature of Israeli politics, not that we're much different here. There's a chance that we'll have a fascist as our next president, Donald Trump. First of all, I hope Donald Trump is not your next president. Uh, I hope for, for you guys and for us. Um, I think if it is, it's going to be extremely harmful, uh, definitely here. Not that Biden has been very good, I have to say, and I think we need to recognize that as well. Um, Biden has supported Israel from the beginning of his presidency, has basically bought in uh, on what Netanyahu was selling. Yes, we can have peace with Saudi sure. Arabia. But, but Haggai, the American left, to some extent, is abandoning Biden as we speak because of his yeah. bear hug of uh, Netanyahu. And that's going to yeah, help. Yeah. That's going to help Trump. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Um, and I think Biden needs to think of what, what he's doing with that. Uh, I do hope that he turns around, uh, both because it's important for us and because it will help him politically survive. Uh, but it's it's a very much of a lose-lose situation in many ways. Well, it is extraordinarily hard to understand how you have in Trump a fascist who is in many ways pro-Nazi. He's not, he's not disguised the fact. He supported the Nazi tiki torch marches in Charlottesville uh, who was chanting, the Jews will not replace us. He had the Thanksgiving before last with a young American a Nazi Nick Fuentes along with Kanye West. So it's hard to understand here in the United States how, you know, right-wing pro-Israel people support him. And the same is in true. You just mentioned earlier, Haggai, that Netanyahu wants Trump back. So he doesn't have a problem having a, his friend a Nazi? Well, I think this has been a, a very long kind of 
uh, history, there's a long history of the Israeli right and far right um, who are allying with anti-Semitic and to the point of neo-Nazi um, right-wing parties in Europe and in the United States um, around their shared Islamophobia, around their shared agendas against immigrants and so on. And I think there's been this deal where you have your far right uh, and people like Trump, where they, they, they're essentially saying, we will be against the Jews in our countries and we will whitewash that by being for Israel. And the Israeli right has been very happy to adopt that because that kind of serves to the point of saying, yes, all Jews should come here. We think that this should be a Jewish nation state. And, you know, you had um, people on the American far right, the Nazi right, saying all Jews should leave the United States because this should be a Christian state. So they should leave here. They should go there. We'll support their um, agendas in the Middle East, and in return, we'll get rid of them here. So that deal has worked well for both sides, and I think it's deeply troubling, and we need to identify that on the left. Well, Hagan Matar, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Sure, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Haggai Matar, who's an award-winning Israeli journalist and political activist. He's the executive director of the 972 magazine and has an article at the New Statesman, There is Little Tolerance in Israel for Dissenting Feelings. And he joined us from Israel. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into growing tensions on the border between Venezuela and Guyana as Venezuela's President Maduro makes claims on his neighboring country threatening to annex an oil and mineral-rich chunk of Guyana. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Venezuela is Phil Gunson, who is the Andes Project Senior Analyst with the International Crisis Group, who conducts advocacy on political issues in the Andes region, focusing primarily on the Venezuelan political situation. He has spent about 40 years reporting on Latin America for the BBC World Service, The Guardian, Newsweek, The Miami Herald, and The Economist. And in the 1980s, he covered the wars in Central America. And then late 1990s, he was Latin American correspondent for The Guardian, based in Mexico City. And he's co-authored two books on the region, including a two-volume political dictionary of Latin America and the Caribbean. Welcome to Background Briefing, Phil Gunson. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining us, Phil. And what's happening now with Venezuela threatening to go to war, in effect, with its neighboring country, Guyana, to annex a large chunk of its territory, uh, which apparently is uh, rich in oil and minerals. Well, to be strictly accurate, they're not really threatening to go to war. I mean, they're insisting that this is a a peaceful push to, as they would put it, recover the Essequibo territory, which they say they inherited from the Spanish colonial power. Um what is actually happening right now is they're doing an enormous number of things, um, none of which involve actually entering the Essequibo territory, at least for now. Um, they're passing a law in Parliament in defense of the territory. They're asking their state oil company and basic industries company to uh, carve out concessions in the Essequibo, so far only on maps, um, and a number of other things which really amount to announcements like like uh, suggesting offering uh, identity cards of Venezuelan nationality to the inhabitants of the Essequibo. Perhaps the most alarming thing is that they have given the oil companies currently drilling for oil in offshore waters that Guyana claims um, just three months to stop that and, and renegotiate the, the claims with them. Um, so that, I think, is uh, raising some alarm in, in, in Georgetown, the Guyanese capital, as you might imagine. But they're taking it seriously in Guyana, aren't they? They're looking around for allies and raising the alarm at the United Nations. They are taking it seriously, and I think they have to. 
Um, Venezuela, of course, is many times the size of Guyana. Its military forces are much more powerful. Um, if um, all other things being equal, if Venezuela decided to move into the Esequibo, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for the Guyanese defense forces to stop them. But of course, diplomatically, Guyana has a lot more support than Venezuela does, um, and not least from the United States. Um, Southern Command, U.S. Southern Command is 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 in uh, Guyana now, even as we speak. There have been several visits by um, high-ranking people from Southcom, and the U.S. has made it clear that it is backing Guyana in this one. But so is Brazil, right? Well, Brazil, yeah, but I mean, Brazil is uh, Venezuela's biggest immediate neighbor. It's uh, its neighbor to the south. It also, Brazil, uh, borders on Guyana. And for Brazil, uh, Guyana is a potential outlet to the Atlantic. Brazil has interest in, in Guyana, but more, more, you know, over and above that, it has an interest in preserving regional peace. The other worrying thing for the Brazilians is that since there's no road going into Guyana from Venezuela, if in the what I still think is an unlikely event that Guyana, that I'm sorry, that Venezuela wanted to make some kind of real military push into the Essequibo region, it would need to do a detour via the far north of Brazil. So the Brazilians are on high alert and have reinforced their borders both with Venezuela and with Guyana. So is Maduro Venezuela's leader, some call him a dictator, because he's obviously trying to stop an alternative candidate from gaining any traction. As far as I know, uh, he stopped the latest possible opposition figure, right? So is he doing this to distract the Venezuelan people from his own mismanagement? I think I think there's a lot in that. Um, Maduro faces a very difficult uh, re-election bid. The elections uh, for president are due next year. He's trailing very badly in the polls. The opposition candidate, Maria Corina Machado, um, his government has banned her from standing. Um, I think part of what's going on is uh, a kind of a push to exacerbate nationalist feeling within Venezuela to kind of have people rally around the flag and also to overshadow, obviously, the uh, opposition's success in its own primary election, the election that led to the choosing of Maria Corina Machado back in October. So I think for the most part, it's it's a question of domestic politics rather than um, banging the war drum at the moment. But obviously, they sound very similar, and particularly if you're in, in Guyana watching this from across the border. Well, Venezuela is having a massive impact on the United States. In, of course, the United States has been trying to dislodge uh, Maduro, backing opposition candidates who really didn't pan out. But ironically, Venezuela is having a, a very detrimental effect on American politics. And curiously enough, even uh, on the conduct of American support for the war in Ukraine against uh, Russia, because this, the, the Senate basically, and along with the House now, are basically insisting on a new border wall and also changing the asylum rules because of the massive influx of refugees from uh, Cuba and particularly from Venezuela. So you're there in Venezuela. How do the Venezuelans see this? I mean, hasn't something like a, a, th a quarter of their population already fled the country? Well, UN figures suggest that there are very nearly 8 million Venezuelans. That's out of a population of a little over 30 million uh, who've left the country over the last, mainly over the last 10 to 12 years. Um, and obviously, this is a big headache, uh, not just for the United States, it's a big headache for neighboring countries, which have taken the, the brunt of this migration. Um, and it's a big consideration for the Biden administration, especially going into an election year, in that U.S. sanctions, whilst they didn't cause the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela, which is driving this migration, uh, they certainly don't help. And so... The United States has um, offered, well, actually given uh, sanctions relief to the Maduro government on the condition that it improves conditions for next year's elections. But at the moment, Maduro's response to that has been quite the reverse. He's, if anything, uh, presiding over a fresh crackdown of the opposition, making it very difficult for the United States um, to refrain from reimposing those sanctions. And they're already calls, particularly from the Republican side, 
in Congress for that to be done immediately. Um, I think Biden's very reluctant to do that, and not least because it gives a further push to to migration, of course. So this is a Maduro's revenge, is it? He's a, he's a failed leader who's presided over a catastrophic misrule, but he's getting back at the Yankee imperialist train. <laughs> well, yes, that, that, there's a lot of anti-imperialist rhetoric here, obviously. But I think the, what the real bottom line here is that Maduro and those around him have not seriously contemplated leaving power, handing over power to to an opposition government. And everything they do has to be seen in that light. Um, they would rather um, have the U.S. Impose, reimpose sanctions. They would rather... Uh, see a worsening of an already very bad economic situation than have to hand over power. So I think whenever we try to interpret what they do, and of course not all of it is transparent, um, I think we have to, to, to interpret it in that light, that that's what's really going on first and foremost, which doesn't, of course, rule out the possibility that uh, there are other considerations as well. So just in closing then, Phil Gunson, you mentioned that the opposition candidate, she's been banned from running and that she's way ahead in the polls. Who Who is the opposition going to run, given Maduro's restrictions on who can challenge him? Well, for now, the opposition is insisting that Maria Corina Machado is the candidate and that the Maduro government must lift the ban. The Maduro government offered in the last few days, in response to pressure from the United States, a mechanism which supposedly would allow Maria Corina Machado to appeal the ban. But it doesn't really amount to anything more than a disguised um, whim or, or, you know, a a disguised uh, decision by the government itself. It it involves an appeal to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court itself is dominated by, by the government. So at some point, if the opposition persists in its electoral route, then it's going to have to choose another candidate. But that's not clear right now. It's not clear how they would do that or who that candidate would be. And the government has a habit of um, banning whoever gets chosen. So there's no guarantee that the government won't ban a substitute candidate and, and so on, so on down the line until they find somebody that they can live with, which which essentially means somebody they believe can't beat Maduro. Well, Phil Gunton, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. You're very welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Phil Gunson, who was in Venezuela, where he's the Andes Project Senior Analyst with the International Crisis Group, who conducts advocacy on political issues in the Andes region, focusing primarily on the Venezuelan political situation. He spent almost 40 years reporting on Latin America for the BBC World Service, The Guardian, Newsweek, The Miami Herald and The Economist. And in the 1980s, he covered the wars in Central America. In the late 1990s, he was Latin America's correspondent for The Guardian, based in Mexico City, and has co-authored two books on the region, including a two-volume political dictionary of Latin America and the Caribbean. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.